and welcome to the CU Insight Network Podcast. My name is Lauren Culp. I'm the publisher and CEO at CUinsight.com. And it's my job on this show to have conversations with the thought leaders that support the credit union community. Together, we get to talk about all those issues that affect credit unions and, and what the best practices are to learn from one another and ultimately improve our industry. My guest on today's show is Joshua Barclay. He's the Growth Marketing Manager at CRM Next. Joshua, thanks for being here. Lauren, thank you for having me. I read CU Insight pretty ritualistically, so I'm excited to be here. I love it. Well, I always start off these episodes the same way, which is to say that most of us did not grow up thinking we would get to work with credit unions. But I'd love to know, what did you want to be growing up? When I was growing up, I was captain of the basketball team in eighth grade. And I was not captain in high school, but I played for a very, very good team in Eastern Connecticut. So I dreamt of playing for the Chicago Bulls. And I've fallen very, very far from grace if that was the goal. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, what was the journey like then um, from potential sports superstar to your current role as growth marketing manager at CRM Next, which I would say is still a superstar role? So my very first job, I was the rat at Chuck E. Cheese. So if you know what Chuck E. Cheese is, Chuck E. Cheese is like a kid's place for kids' birthday parties. It's an arcade. It has ball pits, pizza. So my very first job, I would climb into that rat suit and I would dance at kids' birthday parties. And from there, I became a bellboy at Foxwoods Resort Casino in Connecticut. So when I was a bellboy, I kind of interacted with you know thousands. I mean, this was a very busy hotel at the time. So thousands of people, celebrities, and it's weird to say, but when I graduated high school, it was 2004, and I was making a lot of money as a bellhop. There were like 45-year-old men with like mortgages doing the job. So for a second, I was like, you know, I'm not going to go to school. I'm just going to work at the hotel. And my mom had a conversation with me when we were driving to the grocery store. She said... I'd like to think of you as a little bit more than somebody who just carries luggage. And that really... I wasn't really an ambitious person and that impacted me greatly. So I enrolled in community college and kind of you know, went to film school in New York City. While I was in film school, me and my roommates started a company. We raised $90,000 and we created a feature-length movie that we sold to Lifetime. So that lifetime, yes, the movie network for for women, these awful... Ours was really, really bad, but it aired in 2015 and I had a bit of a stint in film and television. I was living in New York City and I kind of saw the writing on the wall in terms of... I went to the American film market. This is where people go to buy and sell movies. Basically, in Santa Monica, you go to a giant hotel... And you kind of see the buyers and sellers. And I went there in late 2015 and I saw the streaming network starting to take over. And by take over, I mean, for a long time, you could be an independent filmmaker and sell a movie and make a lot of money because there were a lot of bidders. But we've seen a consolidation in terms of streaming networks. So, you know, back in 1991, you might have 30 bidders that could bid up your movie to $10 million. 
now there aren't as many bidders and the market is more consolidated. And I just said to myself, I don't think this is a reliable way to make money. So I had a bad situation on a movie where producers were... They, they didn't pay me. I had to get a lawyer involved. And it soured me so much that I had to think to myself, what am I going to do next? And my, I majored in video editing and production. So I was like, okay, I know content creation very well. I think I can take this skill set and move it into another capacity, which was marketing. So long story, I know, but that's kind of the gist of how I moved into software and the credit union space was I looked at things I was passionate about, which is marketing. And in New York City, I had a roommate who worked for Goldman Sachs. I know that's definitely not the credit union space, but he kind of got me into the idea that finance really is the underlying thing throughout life. You want to send a rocket to space, you need money. You want to get a vehicle, you need money. You want to start a business, you need money. So I became very interested in finance through my roommate, which led me to where I am today. Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded. <laughs> I love hearing about the journey that is very different than a lot of folks. So how a lot of folks got to the credit union space. Tell us a little bit more about CRM Next. What's that elevator pitch you give folks about what you do and where you add value for the credit union space? Elevator pitch, I'm probably going to fail and my, my president's going to be like, terrible elevator pitch. But essentially what we do is we take all of your member data and we make that visible across every single department in your credit union. And I know some people say, yeah, we've heard that one before. But the difference between what we do and what others does is our team actually has experience working on the front lines in credit unions and banks. So we're a vertical CRM, meaning like Salesforce might like do like a zoo, you know, CRM for zoologists and and lawyers and gas station owners and we only focus on CRM specifically for credit unions and community banks. So we bring that visibility to every single department, but it's actually actionable. Meaning, I don't mean like we surface data and then your marketing team gets a list and then they go off and run campaigns against the list. I mean, everything is actionable within our platform. Meaning, if I see Lauren Culp uh, in my CRM, I have a complete picture of your financial journey and where you are in your life. And I can deploy offers within the CRM. I don't need to open 16 different tabs and move across different software to send you a campaign. I can literally work throughout my entire day in one system and go from insights to action. Because the thing that I'm hearing a lot is like, right offer at the right time, right offer at the right time. Like If I had a dollar for every time I heard right offer at the right time, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'd be on the beach sipping a rainbow colored drink with like Jimmy Buffett playing in the background and maybe like a talking parrot on my shoulder. The truth is people don't have the technology to make the right offer at the right time. Because by the time you figure out what the right offer is, it's too late. So that's what I mean about so many people. They get the insights and then they have marketing make a list. But like the process of wrangling the data and then making a list, it's too late. So within CRM Next, it's deploying the, the action off of the insights, lickety split. 
It's that speed from which we can go to. I think Lauren might be interested in a credit card or a HELOC and then immediately being able to send that offer to you. And oh, since I have a 360 view of Lauren, I know that she might like email instead of SMS or an SMS instead of email or hey, maybe she doesn't like any of that. She prefers to communicate through phone call. So it's that idea of insight to action, but in every single department. When people think of CRM, they think of sales and marketing, and we do that. But I'm talking about like your loan officer being able to start his day with a dashboard that shows the loan performance of every single person under him. Are you hitting quota? Are your targets on par? So, and that's every single department. That's the contact center, da, 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 you know, every department. I could, I could go through them, but I think those examples are good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, I know you all at CRM Next have talked about the emergence of what you call a new world banking order. Can you share for our listeners, what do you mean by that? And what's the shift that you're really seeing in the financial services landscape? This is big. And a lot of people say, Hey, Josh, you know, you're a doomsayer or whatever. And the truth is, if we were out on a boat and there was a hole in the boat and water started to leak in and I shouted to everybody, Hey, there's a hole in the boat, you wouldn't say, Josh, you doomsayer. How dare you call out the hole in this boat? You would say, Hey, thanks for, for calling that out. Let's fix it. So what I'm about to drop on everybody is like, it's it's heavy, but I have to do it because I think that the credit union space and the community banking space is in serious danger of, of a consolidation, an extreme one. I'm talking like extreme consolidation where we no longer in this country have as many financial institutions as we have now. And why that's a problem is because so much of our potential comes from getting a loan. I hate to say it, but like start a business, you get a loan, a truck, whatever. And credit unions traditionally have served the underserved and have given opportunity to so many people in this country. So with that being said, the New World Banking Order was coined by someone on my podcast that I co-host with Jonathan Taylor called Banking on Experience. His name is Widgie. And that's his nickname. And Widgie's whole premise is that interest rates have been low for so long. And now that interest rates are really high and credit unions and banks have to do lending again, because for a long time, they could get away with like buying bonds and, and making safe bets that don't require them to really lend money. They, they didn't really have to be good at lending. And now you have to be good at lending Because there are no easy ways for credit unions and banks to make money. Now, I'm going to take this idea a little further because Widgie is more articulate than me, but I'll tell you how I view the New World Banking Order. In 1991, there was the perfect storm. And there was a movie made about it with with George Clooney. I I don't remember the movie too well. I remember liking it, but I was too young to really know whether it was good or not. I'm sure it wasn't good. But the point being, the movie was based on a true story. In 1991, late October, early November in 1991, there was a nor'easter that was absorbed by Hurricane Grace, and it created a very rare and powerful storm. And the combination of those things 
formed an unnamed hurricane. I mean, they call it the perfect storm right now, but at the time it was an unnamed hurricane because these conditions have never been seen before. So there were these poor saps, these fishermen, they were on a boat called the Andrea Gale and they were doing commercial fishing in Massachusetts. They were headed to catch swordfish in the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. And they were told through radio communication, hey, there is an insane storm coming. You should maybe like head back to shore. And these guys basically said, no, we're, we're going to get these swordfish. We're going to ignore the warning. Long story short, all six crew members in the Andrea Gale were lost at sea and they never even found the wreckage of the boat. And I think that's telling for where we are right now, not only as an industry, but as a global economy. So there are the obvious things everybody talks about, right? There are credit card debt over a trillion dollars, right? That's the hackney one you hear over and over again. Default rates are increasing. Net income, you know, I just looked at the latest NCUA reports, down 10% from last year. That's not uh, a small amount. That's a double digit amount. And, And then on top of it, you have, oh, we just got out of a pandemic. Oh, there's AI, which is basically our equivalent of the printing press. So we just had a pandemic. We printed the most money that we've ever seen. We have inflation going. We have AI, which is going to displace, and it already is. It already is displacing teams. You're going to see smaller teams, right? So less jobs, inflation, high interest rates. And then on top of that, there's the geopolitical stuff that no one wants to talk about. The United States has been subsidized for a long time on cheap labor and military might. And the other countries right now are no longer going with it anymore. China no longer wants to be our you know, cheap manufacturing country, right? Like prices are going up because like we're printing more money, but they're also going up because we don't have the influence with the rest of the world that we used to have, right? And I could keep going and going and going of, of all these storm conditions, creating this perfect storm that nobody has any context for. Everybody wants to go, oh, well, this is like 2008. No, it's not. This is not analogous to 2008. You've never lived through a Spanish flu-like scenario followed by technology that is probably the most innovative ever, right? So it's like, and then on top of that, all the inflation and the the raising of rates. And so nobody has a guidebook right now for how to navigate the situation we're in. And that's what I would call the new world banking order. Given all of the context that you shared, what do you recommend that credit unions really pivot toward today? Well, I just got done saying, right, that there is no like guidebook for this. So for me to come on here like a know-it-all would be like, I'm aware that I, I don't know everything. But the one thing that I do know is that if we're talking about lending, we are going to need to be more data-driven than we have ever been because opportunities to understand risk, to be able to assess risk as lenders and financial institutions 
it's going to be more complicated. You can't do anything from the gut anymore. You can't be like, oh, I've been the chief lending officer in New England since 1968. What you know is irrelevant because you can no longer assess risk when the storm clouds are coming in and getting stronger and stronger. So we're going to have to look at data and really have the technology available to make sure that everybody in our credit union is doing the right thing that's going to lead to the best member experience, the best offers for our member, really understanding them and really gaining loyalty and not just loyalty. We use that word and throw it around loosely, but helping actually being so good that you have a crystal ball in front of you, meaning that, okay, Lauren, you're a member at my credit union. I want to be able to support you in any journey in your financial life, even the bad ones, even you saying, Hey, Josh, I lost my job. I'm going to be late on my car payment. Cool. Let's do a skip a pay. Is there anything I can do to consolidate your debt? Are there any financial instruments that you have right now? Maybe I can look at them and, and find other places for you to put your money. And it all comes down to having the data to do that. So to me, the only way to brace for this storm is to really, really understand your member and have a full-fledged data strategy that can bring them wherever they need to go in their financial moments of truth. Becoming data-driven for credit unions is so critical. We talk about it a lot. We've heard a lot of folks talk about transforming technology. Do you think this data-driven approach, is that solely a technology issue? And, and how do you suggest credit unions really frame the problem? Yeah, this is a very, very interesting question, Lauren. And it's more than a technology problem. So everybody knows they see a, they need a CRM or data unification, right? Like you could go to anybody at a credit union and they'll say, yeah, no, duh, of course we know that. But the real problem has been the failure rate. There's all kinds of statistics about digital transformation failure rates. None of them are good. Some of them say it's 70% of all digital transformations fail. Some say 80%. I've even heard higher. And the issue is data transformation can take your credit union to space. It's like a rocket. That's what I liken it to. It's a rocket ship. The problem is a lot of the current vendors don't teach you how to get to space. They drop the rocket off in your front yard and they say, Hey, we're taking off. Don't call us. We have a third party team that you can call, but we're out of here. And when you really think about it, a lot of people at credit unions, they don't know how to fly a rocket. A rocket to Elon Musk is probably like a multi billion dollar, you know, something that he can really utilize to take to space. But if you dropped a rocket ship in my driveway, I would tell you, get this thing out of my driveway. I don't know how to fly it. I can't back my car out of my garage because the rocket's in the way. Every time my kid gets on the school bus, he's being scrutinized. Like, get the rocket out of my yard. And that's what other vendors are doing right now is they're going to credit unions and saying, digital transformation, cool. I'm going to dro drop a rocket off in front of your credit union, you figure out how to take it to space. Because the truth is, data transformation, digital transformation, it's more than technology. It's about building a strategy, building the process to understand how to drive uh, 
department-wide adoption, right? So it's not just... If it was just technology, we would be good to go. We would have every credit union competing like a mega bank right now. But it's not the technology. It's the support, the teaching, the, the building of the processes that come with the, the technology that have not been addressed. I think there's so much there. And when we think about all of the different kind of evolving landscape kind of issues that we are experiencing today, what are you really focused on as CRM Next looks to the future? What's your focus for the road ahead? Our focus for the road ahead is really taking people from the very first step. So we have an incredible team of people who actually worked in credit unions. We have Jared Briner, who you've actually interviewed before. And Jared has almost two decades of experience. And Carol Claggett um, has decades of experience working in a bank. So we have these people with this firsthand experience that are going to sit down with you and not rush you into anything. We're not going to rush you into any technology. We're going to ask you what your goals are because every credit union has different goals. This is why that this is why technology doesn't work and it fails because there really isn't a one size fits all in any credit union or any community bank. So we're really focused on guiding you through what do you actually need? What do you need to to achieve your goals? Then what does that look like in every single department of your credit union? What dashboards does everybody need to see? Because they're not going to be the same. And then it's about guiding you and being there every step of the way. So we don't have a third party anything. We help you build your strategy. We help you build your process. And we do implementation. So when we build with you, we never say goodbye. When, to bring back the rocket analogy... We not only sell you the rocket, but we're your mission control. So when you get, we help you get to space, but when you're in space and you need help, you can do, you know, a message to ground control and we're going to be there for you every step of the way. Everything's in house. And we take a lot of pride in being there from the beginning to the end. Because if you're not there from beginning to end, how can you possibly be successful? Like if I have a vendor who, build strategy with me like a consultant, but then they're not responsible for implementing the technology. There's such a disconnect between those two parties. And it's weird that I spent all this time with you to build this strategy and you weren't even the one to implement the technology. So that's what we're really focused on is, is really being a partner that's going to guide you through every step of the way and then continue to be there for you because we know that this is a rocket. It's not easy to fly, but we know you have to do it. And you know you have to do it. So we want to be that partner that can really help you build every single step of the process so you can have the success that you need and have that data strategy where you can be like that crystal ball for your members. So much good information, Joshua. Thanks so much for sharing all of this. And as we wrap up the show, we always like to have some fun with rapid fire questions to let our listeners get to know you a little better. I like to say the questions are rapid, but your answers don't necessarily have to be. So if you are ready, I will dive into the first one. Let's do it. 
Question number one, who is someone in your life that was a great leader and what makes them so great? Um, I would say my, my uncle Ron, um, who he passed away in 1994 and, uh, he taught me how to play chess. He had an Omega computer in the mid eighties, which was like a $6,000 purchase that my aunt was really, really mad about. And what made him a great leader was people have a problem with thinking about too many things or being distracted and doing like 16 things. I'm very like tunnel vision. I like grab one thing and become obsessive. And the leadership he gave me was he would catch me anytime I was becoming obsessive about things. And he tried to instill a balance in me that I still don't have as an adult. I think great leaders are people who can complement your strengths, but then gently, gently approach your flaws and make you comfortable about discussing things that you're not good at or things that you struggle with just to help make you cognizant of it so that it's on your radar. And that's what my uncle Ron did. Great story. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Question number two, if you are going to splurge on something you want to treat yourself, what is something you might invest a little bit into, whether that is time or resources? Dinners. So um, when I lived in New York City, our rent was insane. I I won't say it here, but I was in a two-bedroom apartment for a while with like five five dudes. We had to build like walls that weren't supposed to be there. And I had to eat really, really cheaply. So I mean, there was a place called The Associated and it had like $2 slabs of meat. So I would eat this really cheap food and it would just demoralize me. I think people people probably recognize this, but not enough that your diet can be demoralizing. Like over time, you, you, I would like it would break my soul to eat this food. And now that I I'm in a position where I have a little bit of money to be able to splurge, I always make sure that um, I find good dining experiences and go out with people and have great conversation and wine and and just enjoy good food because it's so good for the soul to be in a restaurant with good lighting. Sunday, I was at a great restaurant, great lighting, fireplace going, great food, great conversation. So if I'm going to splurge, I'm really all about a, a great dining experience. I like it. All right. Well, speaking of great dining experiences, you might have them on my next question. Random question for you though. If you travel for work, what city are you most excited to visit? Whether it's for going to a conference, for a client visit, maybe the the dining options play into what your favorite is. People get mad at me for this response. And before I tell you what it is, I'll say number one, you got to remember that I was in the film business for a while. And number two, I love it because it's unabashedly sleazy. It knows what it is and it doesn't try to hide it. Los Angeles is my favorite city. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with the fact that growing up, watching movies, culturally, you know, it's been on my radar forever. And when you think about it, it's wild. I grew up in Connecticut, which is complete opposite side of, of California and Los Angeles. And it still has an imprint in me as though I grew up there through the movies, through television, through culture. So I would say Los Angeles, although I know that a lot of people give me heat for that one. 
<laughs> I like it. Well, I don't know if there are too many credit union conferences in LA next year, but there might be some coming up. All right. Next question for you. What is a book that you think just everybody should read? Tuesdays with Maury. I thought about this, you know, the, uh, the idea of what books people should read. And I don't know how familiar you are, Lauren, with Tuesdays with Maury, but essentially it's a true story about a man who's dying and a student of this man. This man was a Maury teacher and he's dying. He's on his deathbed and his student reaches out to him after finding out that his teacher's on his deathbed. And it's very much a book about, about life, about acknowledging death and sort of putting everything into perspective. And to me, it's a really good story because it's... I think we're really bad at remembering that we're going to die. We're like really bad at it because we plan into the future and we don't want to think about it. So we don't think about it. But I think it affects so many of our decisions because I think that we would be more careful about the way we treated each other and about how we lived our lives if we were more cognizant of like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm going to die. I'm not here forever. So I think Tuesdays with Maury is easily a book I would recommend for anybody. We will link to that book here in the show notes for folks. Great suggestion. All right. Next question. What has been your best hack for creating balance and integration between your work life and what you might call your life life? I'm the last person that should answer this question because I still am failing at this one. I think <laughs> for me, I submerse myself in work because I understand it and it's easier than life. I think I use work as a distraction. I'm trying to have that balance more. I have a puppy now and I like to go out with my puppy and it gives me a reason to okay, Josh, you, you know, you don't need to be on the computer for the next two hours and do this thing. Like, get off the computer for a second. It's not going to harm you to take a break. So I am trying my best, but I cannot give anybody any advice on work-life balance. So I'm going to... Still a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Well, we're going to link to everything we talked about today in the show notes, like we said. My last question for you, though, Joshua, is do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share or final asks of our listeners today? Yeah. The final thing I'd like to say is I represent a vendor. So it's easy for you to be like, oh, of course, he's going to say that. But this is what I'll say. I think CRM Next is the best at data unification and giving you those insights to action. But you don't have to go near us. My ask for you as a credit union is do something. I don't care. I don't care where you do it, who you do it with, if you go with a competitor. I don't care. Just please, in a year or two, don't be one of those people that like the the crew in the perfect storm, the fishermen that went out in that storm, were told through radio broadcasts that there was a big storm coming and didn't do anything about it. So my advice or my parting words with anybody listening is if you do not have your data together, please do something. And I don't care who you do it with, but just don't be caught out in the storm when everybody told you it was coming. 
Well, that is a perfect way to wrap up our conversation today. Thank you so much, Joshua, for being on the show. Really great hearing from you and all of the the insights you shared for our listeners today. I hope you stay well. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into the CU Insight Network podcast. And we will be back again next time.